Take your Bibles, please. And we have two texts today. The first is in Exodus chapter 20. And the second is in Deuteronomy chapter 5. What I hope today to do today is to bring to a close a series we've been doing on creation, the doctrine of creation. And I want to consider its connection with Christian worship. In some sense, we need both. We need to recover one in order to recover the other and vice versa. So we, to recover a robust doctrine of creation, we must recover the place of worship. But to recover the proper practice of worship, we must recover a robust doctrine of creation. I said at the beginning of this series, I think I mentioned it several times since then, that a mature, healthy understanding of creation is essential to growth in Christian discipleship and witness to the gospel. Having finished this series, I think I'm more convinced of this than ever. But what is worship? What do we think of as the purpose for worship? What is the place of the Trinity or Trinitarian grammar in our worship? What shapes our worship? One could argue that worship oftentimes is seen as a means of helping us recharge our batteries to help us get through the coming week. That having been worn down for the past six days, we've come here, we charge up again, and then we're ready to face the world once again. We do this rather than seeing ourselves as participating in the redemption of creation or anticipating the end, the purpose of redemption of creation, that is the new creation. I think that it may in fact be that we look at things the way that they are and we see worship as a way to help us manage, a way for us to survive in the world the way that it is. The reality is is that the worship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit should bring us into the most real world of God's redemption of creation. God is redeeming creation right now. I don't know that we think in those terms. We think of the world primarily as fallen, it's a mess, and God has saved us, and one day he's going to take us out of this mess. But in the meantime, we just sort of need to keep our heads above water. Instead of seeing God as changing the world, transforming the world, and changing us as well. So that our lives are to be continually transformed. When we gather to praise God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, to give thanks for creation and redemption, we should find at least some of the following. That we are submitting our lives in the fallen world to the story of God's redeeming of creation. We're not saying simply, this is the way things are and we just have to deal with it, but rather we submit our lives to God's story of redemption. It should also be that we focus our lives as a community of God's presence. We saw this when we looked at the Beatitude, Blessed are the Meek, that meekness should characterize a person who could in fact dominate all others by his or her insight, knowledge, or communication skills, but in fact holds back so that the community itself, God's people, the disciple, if you wish, community, the followers of Jesus, will in fact grow together. Each one's gifts will be able to flourish and the community as a whole will grow. 
should also be that we would encourage each other to patience. And in our praying, we pray two prayers. You may remember earlier in the series, the first is the the lament, How long, O Lord, from Psalm 13. This prayer reminds us that, yes, in fact, we do live in a fallen world. We're not ignoring that. We're not trying to escape it. But it forces us to direct our fears, our doubts, our struggles, the frenzy in our lives toward the one who is, in fact, the creator. So when, in fact, we cry out to God, there may, in fact, be the sense of impatience and of what's going on. But on the other hand, there should be the sense that who else would I go to? Who else would I say to to this person, how long? It is, in fact, God's world and God is in the process of redeeming his creation. We should ascribe to God not only the ability, but the responsibility to act. To take us away from the story of the fallen world into the story of redemption. When we pray the prayer, how long, O Lord? Our prayer is properly centered on God. He alone can bring life in the midst of death. We see this in resurrection. He alone can bring evil to account without doing evil. We see this in judgment. Who alone changes the world, and not just for the better, but for the new creation. That is the tell us of all things. The second prayer that we pray, and we saw this in the series, is come Lord Jesus, which was a part of what Zib read to us today. It is a prayer of hope. It isn't that we simply say, how long, how long, how long, but there is in the midst of this, this prayer of hope that reminds us that God is, in fact, doing something. He does not explain to us in the midst of evil and suffering why these things exist. And we don't always see how they're going to end up. In fact, we may die before we see evil judged or evil people judged. But in our prayer, in our worship, we pray, come Lord Jesus. In the same way that he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What this teaches us is that the redeeming of creation does not arise from creation. It isn't something that is built into the system. It is God, the creator, who is redeeming his creation. We should also in our worship be renewed in Sabbath rest. We should be restored by the hope of the resurrection, recaptured by the story of the redemption of creation, and reoriented toward the new creation, which we may have forgotten in the days that have preceded. Transformed by these practices, we now begin to become, as God wants us to be, the people of his kingdom. There are several things I want us to consider today with regard to worship. The first is Sabbath. When we gather to worship, we continue the keeping of the Sabbath. It reflects the Genesis story of creation. But we also hear it in the Ten Commandments. Now, the two passages that I want us to look at, if you know the Old Testament at all, are the two different versions of the Ten Commandments. The first is found in Exodus chapter 20. And I just want to read um, 
the fourth commandment, which begins in verse number eight. It has to do with the Sabbath. Just a side note, parenthesis. Of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath commandment in both versions is by far the longest commandment. And that should say something to us. But it is worth noting, and we'll see this in a minute, that what Moses writes in Exodus 20 is not exactly what he writes in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Look, if you would, in Exodus 20, beginning in verse number 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not work, or you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Here, the commandment of the Sabbath rests on the creation week. That is to say, God created the world in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. I think this expression, God rested, has thrown a lot of people over the years. I think what it means is, at least a part of it, is that God, having completed that aspect of creation, then, in a sense, entered into his creation um, it is his dwelling. It is the universe that he has made. It is his work. Because we find in John chapter 6, as Jesus tells those listening to him, my father has been working up to this very day. God continues to work. But after six days, the creation is there. And since God has entered into it, it is his creation. And he is beginning the work of taking it from where it is to where he wants it to be which will ultimately be the new creation. We've seen this in this series, that uh, when God finished creating the world, the world wasn't finished as such. It's not end of story. It is merely the beginning. And when God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, that was only a beginning. There they were to learn obedience. There they were to grow. They were to mature. And when they reach a certain point, then they could go out, they and their descendants, and go out into the world and subdue it. And the time would come, redemption would not be the right word, but the time would come when they would, in fact, go from this creation to the new creation. But as we know, Eve sinned, Adam joined her in her sin, and the creation was sort of knocked off track until Jesus came into the world to put it back on track to lead us to the new creation. Now look, if you would, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, our second text, Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Deuteronomy literally is the second law. Here, near the end of his life, near the end of 40 years of being in the wilderness, Moses retells, because it's now a new generation that has emerged, um, that has arisen, and he retells the story. And here in chapter 5, we have the Ten Commandments given once again. It begins in verse number 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your main manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, 
nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Um, interesting. I would remind you of what we saw earlier in this series, that as far as we know, uh, the people of God do not know about creation, the story of creation, until they get to Sinai. It is when Moses begins to write down what we call Torah or the Pentateuch that the story of creation is told to God's people. So creation is told in the midst of redemption. That is the context. Moses says to the people of Israel, God has saved you. He has redeemed you out of slavery. Now let me tell you the story of how this all began. And he tells them the story of creation. In Exodus 20, the basis of Sabbath is creation. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, the basis of, of Sabbath is redemption. Because God redeemed you out of Egypt. Remember, you used to be slaves. And the basis of Sabbath is, in fact, redemption. When we compare the two versions of the fourth commandment, we should recognize and learn that Sabbath not only roots us in the recognition of God's work of creation as gift and blessing, which it certainly does, but it also resists, it subverts, it overthrows the claims, the powers in our lives. See, the Ten Commandments were given to people who had for four centuries been enslaved. They were used to somebody else having power over them. They were used to someone telling them, you must work X number of days, this is what you're going to do. Now, in this fourth commandment, God says, I have redeemed you, I have freed you, I have liberated you. Trust me, one day a week, you are not to work. You are, in fact, to rest in God. To know, in fact, that we can take a day off. In a world of competition, survival of the fittest, we may think we cannot afford, we cannot risk such a thing. But the version that we find in Deuteronomy, the version that rests in the Exodus, teaches us that in the midst of possible enslavement to other powers, we are called to trust God. We are called to rest in God. And if we hear and practice well the call to Sabbath, it will call to mind and teach us the patience and the meekness that we have seen earlier in this series. And we will hear the words of Jesus, blessed are the meek. The second thing I want to look at is something called the eighth day of creation. As followers of Jesus, we are to keep the Sabbath and worship on the first day of the week. It is our participation in the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we meet on Sunday. Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. And by meeting together, we are saying, yes, Jesus was resurrected. We will one day be resurrected because his was the beginning and we will one day participate in that as well. Find it interesting that in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the day of Christ's resurrection, Sunday, is referred to as the eighth day of creation. That it is the eighth day of creation. And in this, by saying this, 
we are bearing witness to the reality that Christ's resurrection is in the midst, it is in the work of creation. The resurrection isn't something that happened in this ethereal thing that has no connection to this reality. The resurrection took place in this world, in space and time. It is God's creation, and the resurrection took place in that creation. The resurrection is not something that takes place within the matrix of the fallen world. Because the fallen world, that matrix, the telos, is death. End of story. That's it. The resurrection transcends that because death is, in fact, not the end of the story. Jesus is raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that the fallen world is not all that there is. That that's not the final reality. Jesus, in fact, by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, overcame death. And his resurrection proclaims throughout the entire universe and to all things that God is the creator of all, he is the redeemer of all, and he is, in fact, redeeming his creation. The resurrection of Jesus reveals the defeat of death and the eternality of God's life. That's why, if you remember, in Romans 8, Paul has those intriguing verses about creation groaning and waiting for our redemption, the redemption of our bodies. And it seems very poetic and whatever, but what could that possibly mean? When Jesus was raised from the dead, this isn't simply a historical event for human beings to take notice of. It is that. But all of creation knows that death has been defeated and the new creation will one day come to be. On the eighth day of creation, the Sabbath, in our worship, our lives are brought into this time and place. And they help us remember what God's purpose is, that he will make all things new. In our worship, we gather around the throne of God, as envisioned by John in the book of Revelation. And we proclaim, and this is found in Revelation 4, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And then in Revelation 5, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. In our worship, we declare that all things are made by him, through him, and for him. And Sunday is the first day of the week, but it is also the eighth day of creation. What is the ethos of, of creation for worship? I mean, when we get together, what is it that motivates us? What is it that drives us? Sabbath worship draws us into life of a new creation and it forms us in that new life. We live in a fallen world that is marked by death. No one needs to tell us that. But in worship, we begin to perceive the way in which the fallen world shapes our lives. It, in fact, seeks to control our lives. And I found it interesting in, in the past year, 
as different men have spoken in the church, they've pointed out how that the culture around us seeks to put point us in a particular direction. It tries to shape us or reshape us into something contrary to what God intends. In worship, when we gather together in public worship, it brings us into the reality of the good news. And it isn't that, oh, we get to hear the gospel, but we become a part of the gospel. It teaches us how we are to live as a disciple community. It makes us into a people whose life together bear witness to the way of life in the new creation. This begins as we are called by God to worship. We need to remember life begins with God, not with us. And the reality of worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is the work of these three, their life in us and among us. Life is a gift from God. It's not an achievement of human beings. And this is the case with worship as well. Worship is not the work of human hands, human will. It is not energized by human initiative. When we come to recognize that it is in fact God's gift, God is the one who is calling us, he is the one gathering us to worship, then praise will not be so difficult. It in fact will become I don't want to say automatic, but it will seem quite natural because God has called us. God has given us life. Praise should be the natural response as opposed to saying, oh, I, got, I got to go to church today. I've got to go worship as though the initiative rested with us. Instead, we see that God calls us. And with others, we sing. We cry out, we did earlier in our first hymn, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We find this, by the way, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's vision in the temple. Um, But we also hear it in Revelation chapter 4. The creatures are gathered around the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Confession teaches us that we, along with everything else in creation, are dependent upon God. And everything in God's creation teaches us. We learn from them because we see that God, in fact, has created them. When we come before God to see and to confess his holiness, we are immediately confronted, as Isaiah was, by the reality of our unholiness. When we come into the presence of perfection, then we are made quite aware of our sinfulness. You see, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we are citizens of a fallen world, and we are slaves to death and fear. That's what it means to be a citizen of this planet in a fallen world. And as citizens, we treat things as if they were the source of life, forgetting, in fact, that God is the creator and God is the source of life. If we buy into that lie, as so many have, we will follow and trust created things that cannot give life. But when we worship God, when we confess that he is holy and we confess that we are not holy, We see that we are sinners and we confess our sins as we did earlier today. 
We declare that God is righteous and we give thanks to God. And why do we give thanks to God? Because if in fact we are left as citizens of the fallen world, then death is seemingly the telos. That's all that it's about. We have no vision of things beyond that. But in worship, we come to see that God is redeeming his world and his people as well. That God has given us good gifts. He's given us everything that we need for life. Prior to this confession, and perhaps even today, prior to confessing that God is the source of all things, we might think of death as the final horizon. That's it. That's, that's the end of the line for us. We might think that that's all that there is. But if we come and worship God and give thanks, above all, we give thanks for the gift of life, then we are ready to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. It's hard to know which comes first, the old chicken and the egg thing, but I think, in fact, that we need to hear the gospel in order to worship God as we should. And having worshipped God, then we are prepared to hear the good news once again in a new way. Otherwise, if we don't hear the gospel first and we simply come together and we worship God, I'll put worship in quotation marks, then in fact what we're doing is we're simply assimilating the words. We're using the God words, if you wish, the power words, the Christian words. And we hear them in the context of a fallen world. And we hear them merely as tools for survival in this fallen world to help me get through today and tomorrow and the day after that. But if, in fact, we hear the good news first, then when we come to worship, we hear that God's word, by God's word, it gives us life and that we have new life through him. It brings us into the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It shows us God's holiness, which cannot be, which cannot be overcome by death or sin. It reveals to us that we are no longer enslaved to things that used to enslave us. It frees us from that slavery. And in worship, we begin to recite God's acts of goodness and mercy that gave us life. And our thanksgiving to God becomes empowered. We are equipped for living the way we should in this world. We are being formed as God's people and we are sent out into the world with renewed conviction. I'm convinced that it is in communion that we briefly summarize all of this. It might seem a bit much to ask that in eating a small piece of cracker and drinking a small cup of juice, that we are doing all the things that I've just said, that we are worshiping, we are hearing the good news, we are proclaiming, we are remembering, but that's in fact what happens. That as it is in front of us, and then as it is taken into us, it is the good news that God is redeeming his creation. One, the fourth thing that I want to talk about is the temple. 
In the Old Testament and into the New Testament, the place of worship in Israel's history was the temple. It was the place of God's dwelling. It's quite remarkable when you think about it. I think because we're New Testament people, we, we don't quite get that. But it was a place filled with God's glory. However, in time, it came to represent a political and national ideology. It became the focal point of control. It became a place of exclusion. That women could not come beyond this point and Gentiles beyond this point became a place of exclusion. And those who controlled the, the temple determined who could and who could not worship. By the way, uh, entry into the worship of God also signified those who had access to God's blessing in their life. And as, as much as to say, those who controlled the temple, sorry, you folks out there, you are not worthy of God's grace or God's blessing. We just want you to sort of keep your distance, if you would, please. As one writer put it, the temple became the religion of empire and the denial of creation. What we find in the temple is I'm... Fear that we find in the church today as well is the desire to control the control in the way of the world, to exercise power within the horizon of the fallen world and the rule of death. That is to play by the rules of this fallen world and somehow maintain or achieve a certain level of power. In the process, it became a place, it became a religion that served death. It did not give witness to the life that God gives creation. And so when Jesus came into the world, he challenged temple religion and he contested the rule of death. As best we can tell, there are at least two times when Jesus cleansed the temple. One was at the beginning of his uh, earthly ministry. One was near the end. The first one was found is found in John chapter two. And now I think it becomes a bit clear because after he drives out the money changer, he's asked, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Which seemed rather strange because they said, listen, it's, they've been working on this temple for 46 years and you're going to rebuild it in three days. What we find, however, is Jesus is saying, this is not the temple. That this temple is a place, an ideology that represents an ideology of empire. It will, in fact, be exposed and defeated in the resurrection of Jesus' body. That is the true temple, the presence of God with his people, the glory of God with his people. The good news, as Jesus proclaims it, is that the story of redemption is a story in which life, not death, rules, in which the end of things, the purpose of things, is a new creation, not the rearranging of power in a fallen world. Those who are enslaved to the fallen world and the rule of death hear the good news as blasphemy. We should not be surprised that people wanted to kill Jesus because what they hear from him is blasphemy. Because they have bought into the system of this world, of death. A temple that is driven by the ideology of empire. One of the things that's almost bizarre is when you study the Sadducees, 
the Sadducees were the closest thing you could be to being an atheist and being a religious person. Did not believe in the immortality of the soul, did not believe in angels. They believed in power. And the Romans gave them the power and they were quite content to have it. And so when Jesus comes along and speaks of such things, they hear it as blasphemy. And the days come when the people cry out, crucify him. It is life, not death, that rules. How easily we forget that. We read of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. I did not see a temple in the city, John writes, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. This is life. This is the new creation. And we must take care in standing for the truth that in fact we do not become like the people of the Old Testament and the time of Jesus in which religion becomes something that plays by the rules of this world and becomes a way of manipulating things and having control and power and the power of exclusion in this life. Obviously, there's so much more that I could say about this and we could talk about creation endlessly. But we will call it, uh, come to a close here. I want to mention one more thing and then we will go. And that is evangelism. And this is something I want you to consider. I've said it several times. I said at the beginning of this sermon that a mature, healthy understanding of creation is essential to growth in Christian discipleship and witness to the gospel. For many of us, sharing the gospel means telling people of a way to have their sins forgiven and to spend eternity with God. Not a word about creation perhaps a few words about redemption. I think this is inadequate. If, in fact, we see a healthy understanding of creation as essential to a witness of the gospel, how do we share the gospel? How are we to share the gospel? How are we to evangelize? What is it that we say to people that by God's grace he will save them through what we have said? That how, what is the gospel? How do we communicate this to people? I couldn't help but remember, and I've thought of this many times from the first time I saw the movie Blade Runner. There's an, an amazing uh, thing at the end where Deckard, uh, played by Harrison Ford, he has been hunting down replicants and he has finally caught the last one. Uh, Rudger Hauer plays it, uh, Roy Batty. And he thinks to himself after Roy Batty dies... All he wanted were the same answers the rest of us want. Where did I come from? Where am I going? How long have I got? All I could do was sit there and watch him die. I would suggest to you that in speaking to people the gospel, what they want to know is where did they come from? Maybe they don't. Maybe they need to. Maybe we need to tell them that. 
And we need to tell them where they are going. And I don't mean in terms of heaven or hell, but what God's purpose is in creation, that God began something years ago. And he will, in fact, bring it all the way until it is finished in the new creation. If we're not careful, however, we will get easily sidetracked by questions of science. So how did we get here? And in the process, the conversation basically goes on a tangent or it ends and and that's it. I would suggest to you that what we need to speak to people about, what we need to speak about is what God intends for his creation. That God is redeeming all of his creation. The question, where are we going, is the question we need to try to answer for people. And that answer should not simply be, well, after death you get your ticket punched and you get to go to heaven and float on clouds and play harps and things like that. But to rather see it in terms of creation. A new heaven and a new earth. That's what God intends. I would suggest to you that the beginning point in our conversation of the gospel is creation and redemption. Where did I come from? Creation. Where am I going? The new creation. If you think about it, the church has done a very poor job over the last century of communicating the good news. Because, in fact, what it has done is seen things in the light of a fallen world. Not in terms of redemption. In many ways, the church has bought into death as the telos as well. We have, we have a magical trick that will get you over death into something else. But we bought into that idea of death. Rather than saying that God began something, and he, in fact, is still working on it. He's working on us. And he will bring us to the new creation. And we should call our friends and our, the people we know. Join in God's program. God wants to redeem you. He's redeeming all of his creation. Don't buy into the culture of death. But come to the God of all life. Let's pray together. Father, I suspect that ever since Eve, we have wanted to be the ones who make the rules. And so even when there is a cure, when there is the good news, we somehow reshape it into something that plays by our rules. And so the gospel becomes not redemption, not anything to do with creation, but a way to escape hell something bad. And in all honesty, I'm not sure that many people are necessarily thrilled with the idea of heaven. They just are glad to not be going to hell. And in the process, we have given a fragmented, a truncated view of the wonderful news that you are the source of all life. And by sending your son, you've gotten creation back on track. You're redeeming your creation. Redeeming us as well. This is a lot to think about, a lot to take in.
by your spirit. May we think on these things. And as we speak to people, and perhaps we haven't in some time because we're so put off by the approaches that we hear from so many Christians. As we share the good news, may we think in terms of your creation and your redeeming your creation that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Your people will be with you. Creation itself seems to know far better than we do that this is going to happen. It is groaning. It is waiting eagerly for this. By your Spirit, help us to see these things. And may our worship of you be informed and shaped by these realities. I thank you that we could gather today, that you have gathered us to worship you. And again, on this week of Thanksgiving, may we take the time to think through all that you have done for us. For those that are traveling, that you would bring them back to us safely. Now we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.